You can turn in the book of Proverbs to chapter 11, continuing our reading through the book of Proverbs. As God assures us of his forgiveness, he also assures us that he is instructing us and leading us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and that in Christ all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. And so it's most fitting that we hear in the wake of that great assurance a portion of that wisdom which is ours and which we are to seek uh, from our King, uh, confident that the Lord is pleased to give wisdom to those who ask it. So we'll read Proverbs 11, verses 17 through 22. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we delight and confess that we have treasures on par with with light and water extended unto us in the riches of your word and in the riches that are opened unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who imparts understanding by the, the working of the Spirit who enlightens and opens our eyes. And so we ask that as your word is read and as it is preached, that uh, you would bless us as your people, uh, that you would uh, teach us to receive of its riches, uh, teach us to receive it from uh, the hand of our King. Uh, Teach us, O Lord, Uh, to lean not upon our own understanding, uh, but to cast ourselves upon your promise and your provision. We ask that all of the excellencies of effect which you have assured us are taking place in a rebuke and reproof and correction and upbuilding and encouragement and equipping. Father, that these would come to pass in and among us Father, that we may be the beneficiaries, and yet may we never lose sight that these things are from you, Lord, and not our own attainments, that they bear witness to your glory, Lord, uh, and not our prowess. Uh, We are needy in this way, Lord, and so we ask that you would be merciful to us, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We'll read once more. Exodus chapter 20, 
continuing through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you can find in the hymnal on page 973. We'll go ahead and read both 64 and 65 this evening, but first, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, once more, this is the word of the Lord. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then question 64 asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. And then question 65 asks, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecteth of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. Amen. To open, I want to draw your attention to an episode in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, the first four verses. We have a sort of felicitous alignment here with our morning sermon as Matthew chapter 18 is um, where much of Christ's teaching about forgiveness takes place. And I found it interesting that this is how the chapter wherein matters of forgiveness uh, take place. This is how that chapter begins. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's really interesting that Luke records this conversation taking place not once, but at least twice uh, with the exact same words. And in fact, Luke adds a detail. He tells us that they were arguing. (laughs) A dispute arose among them, them being the disciples, about who was the greatest In the kingdom, we can be too harsh with the disciples. There's a sense in which any conversation about kingdom necessarily introduces the idea of rank. Many of you have expressed dismay at the various titles in Tolstoy. There are princes and there are princesses. There are counts and there are countesses. And it leaves one rather bewildered where we don't even use titles like Mr. and Mrs. anymore. Really, (laughs) the notion of a kingdom brings with it the understanding of rank. There are going to be kings and there are going to be those who are under the kings and so on and so forth down the line. This would have been a natural conception. And so in one sense, it was kind of a natural question. Who is near the top? We'll just frame it that way. That seems to be charitable. Who's near the top? (laughs) They're asking that question in the light of what kingdom would have brought to mind. Luke is less charitable. He wants us to know that they were actually arguing about this. This wasn't a reflection upon the hierarchy that perhaps structured even the kingdom of heaven. This was something personal. 
But they all saw something of their own interest at stake in the question. It's interesting that the Lord doesn't dismiss their question entirely. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't come right out and say, like, no, don't, don't even talk about greatness. I don't want you to even think in those terms. He doesn't say that. He doesn't leave them to their assumptions, certainly, but he doesn't rewrite it entirely, which is interesting. He responds either here by placing a child in their midst. If you take the episode in Luke, I believe it's 26. He refers to the Gentiles and a certain version of the question, which is to be found the world over, but not among them. He places a child in their midst. The word here is rendered turn, unless you turn. The NIV renders it change, interestingly. Unless you change. That seems to whiff of something of what was going on there. <laughs> unless you change and become as children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We learn a number of things from this, don't we? The first is rather mundane, and it seems to hold to this day. Children occupy the lowest strata of society. That seems to be assumed, doesn't it? He doesn't say slaves, servants, women. <laughs> he says children. And that makes sense. Children don't know anything. They have relatively little understanding. They're small. They're physically weak. They're dependent. They have no possessions. There's nothing wrong with that per se. That seems to be true even now. And so perhaps there's an early indictment in the way we've sort of glorified children it's almost unthinkable now that you would tell children this isn't a conversation for you. Be quiet. <laughs> the fact that we're even uncomfortable acknowledging that there is a rank in society and that children are rightly at the bottom of it by virtue of their ignorance and weakness and utter dependence. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Nothing. 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 But that's not the startling lesson, is it? <laughs> Our Lord doesn't just invite us to assume a similar lowliness. He places it as an indispensable requirement. He says, unless you change and become as children, you're not going to enter the kingdom. That's striking. It's incredibly striking. It's incredibly striking in the light of the conversation that they're having because they're clearly not envisioning that. <laughs> they're not anticipating that. They're not anticipating this upside-down order which the Lord opens to them. But he couldn't be plainer. Unless you change and become his children, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. Well, what does he mean by that? It plainly doesn't mean that 
They are to abolish all their relative stations and duties. Assume only the amount of responsibility that a literal child would be given in a society. He's not saying that. How could he send them forth to teach if that were the case? How could he hand them the keys of the kingdom if that were the case? I trust you don't need me to make that argument. Rather, he is instructing them that even in their station as apostles... Indeed, whatever stations they are to occupy, whatever stations his disciples occupy, it is to be occupied with a frame of humility, of meekness, of lowliness, which is not a delusion but rather a posture which is informed by the truth of our absolute position before God. We're forced to acknowledge that we have more in common with children than we'd like to admit. I mean, compared to the riches on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made any attainment in knowledge? And if you think you've attained something in knowledge, Paul says you haven't yet. (laughs) Unless your knowledge has terminated in the life of love, you know nothing yet. In a sense, we retain the ignorance and lowliness of children not in lie, but in truth, in matter of fact. And he presses that upon their hearts as they are about to occupy a very high position in the church as the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone upon which they are going, Christ is going to build his church. This is insightful for us as we consider continually through the fifth commandment, those relative stations that we're prone to get this wrong. We're prone to occupy our stations with a haughtiness because we perceive in them an absolute commentary upon our worth, forgetting that it is the child who is the great one, the one who acknowledges before the Lord impoverishment of understanding, impoverishment of ability, impoverishment of prowess. That is the great one. We get this wrong in other ways, too, in the attempt to abolish all distinctions, don't we? That's a common interpretation of passages like, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You don't have to look hard in the literature to find people saying, see, all relative stations and duties are abolished in Christ. Such a thing just can't hold up in the light of Christ's teaching on the nature of the civil magistrate, on the nature of authority in the church, on the nature of authority in the family. He very plainly indicates that there are relative duties, there are stations which are going to continue to characterize our life in this world, and the call of the Christian is not to transcend them as we reflected last week but to discharge the duties devolving upon us as we take our place within them in a manner that attests our participation 
in eternal life. In other words, we occupy our stations, whether high or low, as those who are starting to look like Christ, who as the true king presented himself as a servant, who as the high and exalted one presents himself to us as lowly and gentle, and who as the eternal word is pleased to dwell among us as true man. So we continue considering our various duties in our several stations and relations, doing so with an eye to our great king who shows us in himself and through his instruction what true greatness is regardless of how we are positioned and recognized in this world that is fading away. We can rejoice as well that this king is pleased to pardon much, indeed, all of our imposter greatness and lead us down the same path of wonderful and otherworldly humility, which he embodied for his entire ministry. So let's ask first of this question, what does our God call us to with the word honor? We considered last week, who is meant by mother and father, father and mother. Here we ask the question, what does honor mean? We heard in the shorter catechism, both 64 and 65, give a little bit more explanation, but they really just restate it. God requires preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone. Question 65 then states it negatively. God forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. The larger catechism picks up the same language but specifies it. The call is to perform the duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, and equals. So we're led to understand that we all have certain duties that are specified to us by virtue of the relationships in which God's providence has placed us. And that these duties come into focus as we consider the stations which we either occupy or which those to whom we owe the duties occupy. Does this make sense? So we're speaking here of relative duties, relative responsibilities. We can distinguish that between absolute duties. You are absolutely, at all times, in all places, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But beyond that, we have relative duties which open up to us as we find ourselves an employee of this or that company, as we find ourselves the employer of these employees, as we find ourselves fathers to these children, husband to this wife, son to this parents, and so on and so forth, all of which lend a specificity to the duties which the Lord places upon us. 
Now that fact alone is noteworthy, that the Lord is not concerned only with absolute duties, but with relative duties. I'm drawing on Protestant scholastic distinctions, so you're welcome. (laughs) He's concerned with both. He has an eye to both. He leaves you not to your own devices in either of them. That my conduct and attitude toward my employees, my fellow workers, my employer, are not just regulated by the general call to love my neighbor, but specifically they are regulated by the fifth commandment. Such that if your boss tells you to work on an assignment, you do well to receive that instruction as if it were God telling you to do that. Ooh, we don't like that. Oh, 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 ah. If you have employees under you, you do well to treat and interact with them as one who accounts for them, not to upper management, but to God himself. Isn't this just what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as unto the Lord and not unto man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same thing and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He's not interested in just regulating this in an absolute and vague term where the contours of my obedience with respect to other human beings is left to my utter discretion. He says, obey them. And then he specifies further. Not just merely externally. (laughs) From the heart, rendering unto them honor and respect and excellence. Oh. I don't know that we make that connection to the Lord's obligating us in the realm of our relative duties. Do you? Do you think that way? That whatever particular duties that you find before you as an employee, as a citizen, as a family member, as a member of this church that the Lord regulates at that level, that he instructs at that level. Can you feel something of our daily need for forgiveness? Do we even think this way in terms of going out of our way to recognize those structures as yielding to us particular duties? I think in many ways, this is an utterly foreign structure of thinking. For us, at least it's not primary. 
Like, maybe we've given, like, tangential thought, maybe, that there's some vague responsibilities that we have that are sort of tied to the specifics of our configured lives. But seeing it as regulated by the hand of providence and then receiving instruction, particularly from the Lord, and realizing that we owe unto them a portion of excellence is from the heart, and that discharge of duty, that's different. That's challenging we need the Lord's mercy in this regard particularly in the form of forgiveness but also in the form of help opening our eyes to them and enabling us as he calls us to fulfill them and that opens up another angle on this how often do we seek the Lord's grace in the discharge of what we probably don't give a second thought to? That's simultaneously wonderfully freeing because it means that so much of what we've characterized as mundane and unexciting and perhaps even unthinkingly beyond the purview of the Lord, the Lord says, no, I'm right there with you to commune with you as you write that expense report. I'm right there with you to commune with you and to adorn with a, a certain Christian excellence the way that you instruct one of your inferiors at work how to accomplish this or that project. I'm right there with you. That opens up just new vistas of communion with Christ, doesn't it? New arenas where we walk by faith in him, by the Spirit. But it also reminds us that we're to undertake nothing. Again, that silly delusion that we've somehow carved out these arenas of self-sufficiency. That somehow we really only need grace and mercy when it comes to the big things. <laughs> He's saying you can't even be a husband for a second without my grace and mercy. And the husbands are like, I, I can see that time to time. I do see that from time to time. But I didn't live like I can't carry that over into the rest of the times. It's the same for whatever vocation you have as, as teachers, as accountants, as whatever you people with computers do, do. <laughs> but none of that is to be undertaken on the basis of a delusion of self-sufficiency. That that whole register is one in which God says, we walk this way together, for I am with you. That's not a promise with qualifications. I'm only with you when you go to church, or I'm only with you when you're walking in this or that way, or I'm only with you if you're in this or that arena of your life. I'm with you. And yet we sometimes operate as if, I got this. I think this expands that loveliness of his presence and his call to reach into all of those corners of our various stations and responsibilities. We can be grateful that there is forgiveness to be found for neglecting to think of these things in this way. We can be encouraged to seek help in those things which we're so quick to characterize as mundane or perhaps secular <laughs> in the worst sense of that word. We're encouraged to seek his help in all things, recognizing our need for him in all things.
I'm going to go on and ask one more specific question tonight. And it's what the larger catechism directs us towards. What specifically are we called to beyond the general designation of honor as inferiors? It goes on to ask about what we're specifically called to as superiors and equals, but we'll just ask as inferiors, because I want us all to consider that we're inferior. That's not really why it starts with inferior, but I do want us all to consider that we're inferior because I think it's the hardest one. For us now, I mean, I think we occupy that position of superior with a certain cockiness that the disciples had brimming in their midst, but... The idea that we are inferior and that there's nothing wrong with that, indeed that there's much to be gleaned from occupying that position, well, I think that's hard for us. That strikes at the heart of our pride. So what are we called to as inferiors? Inferiors in the commonwealth. Inferiors in the church. Inferiors in the home. You say any number of things, but we've already hinted at the heart of the matter. We owe those above us respect from the heart. God can command our hearts. So often we feel like we have no control over what passes in the inner person, don't we? We spend a lot of time thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, showing that the law of God isn't ultimately concerned with externals. Externals rather reveal the internals. And the law touches the heart. As inferiors, we owe respect from the heart. You see this throughout Scripture. You can hear this in any number of places. Paul says it explicitly, doesn't he? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Those are internal realities. Not contempt, not animosity, not resentment, but fear, respect, reverence, with a sincere heart. (laughs) Cormac MacArthur is the author of No Country for Old Men. I don't know if you've read this. Maybe you've seen the movie. I don't. Commend the movie, the, read the books. Puts on the lips of one of his characters something to the effect of, once the children stop saying sir and ma'am, the society is lost. That's far more to that than just a sort of yearning for a golden age. He's putting his finger on biblical wisdom there. He's not lamenting the loss of decorum there. He's not wringing his fists that, oh, in my day, kids were better behaved. He's indicating that this posture of respect is essential to order. And not social order. Moral order. And the destruction of that posture of respect is the inevitable destruction of moral order. And if it takes place from a younger generation to an older generation, 
then a society doesn't have much time left. That's his point. It's easy to bemoan the moral chaos that we find all around us, isn't it? I find it easy to bemoan. It's anarchy. It's moral anarchy. It's the overthrow of moral order. But what about our own treacherous withholding of respect to those it is due? I mean, just look at the state of our churches. Do we draw a line between those things? We're invited to. Remember, this is the gateway to the second table. Now, it's true, under that, there's a more fundamental disregard of that ultimate authority. Granted. (laughs) But do you see that we've got blood on our hands as well? Our churches are filled with people who will agree with an authority insofar as they already agree with an authority. (laughs) I'll follow you insofar as I like what you're saying, and then I'll go down the road. Brothers and sisters, it's easy to look out and see the enemy out there. It's harder to look within and see the enemy crouching at the door of our hearts, which more frequently gets the best of us. The call here to a sincere respect from the heart is not a call to sincerely respect from the heart just authorities we agree with, just those whom we deem as worthy, or just some faint, bare external manner. It's a recognition of God's authority in creation and providence, which has arranged things the way that they are. And seeing that however strange that looks like, it is in a very real sense the will of God. And that we are well served in treating it as such. There's all sorts of things that this plainly doesn't mean. But I trust you can see the heart of the matter. It certainly doesn't mean a blind adoption of everything that's handed to us from the station which is above us, either in age or competence or station, but you know the heart of the matter. There's a wild difference between disagreeing respectfully and the rank contempt that is almost everywhere on display for authority. You know there's a difference. I'm really sorry that we're on the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount at the same time. Because we get a lot of light shed on our really dark hearts. We don't make the connect between that disrespectfulness that we see from our children and those occasions we have to show them that this is actually a violation of God's law and There's much danger to be had down this road, not because social decorum is defied, but because there's something more fundamental going on in the heart, and those are occasions to instruct our children. We don't draw the line of connection between that and the overthrow of the creation order that we see on display around us. We don't draw lines between wives disrespecting their husbands, belittling them, 
in the overthrow of the natural order that we see everywhere on display. Husbands despising every magistrate whom they find ridiculous openly in public forums, sometimes from pulpits. We don't draw a line from that to the overflow of the creation over the overthrow of the creation order everywhere on display around us. Beloved, we have daily need to ask forgiveness. And that not a slight forgiveness, but for cosmic treason. For our culpability in the overthrow of God's creation and the coming flood. We can give thanks for an ark. But let's not kid ourselves. We're not that different from them. By God's grace alone, we're in an ark. And we've seen the excellent one who as king submitted to God, who as the king submitted to earthly magistrates, who discharges his duty, even on earth as an assumed inferior. We've seen something of that loveliness. Do we have the heart to yearn for more of it? Do we have the courage to pray that we'd actually die to ourselves so that we start to discharge those duties in a truly Christian manner? It's easy to say those things. It's hard to earnestly desire them and to persist when the Lord brings them to pass. May he grant to us a glimpse of our need for forgiveness in these areas. May he assure us that he is bountiful and forgiving love. And may he work in us a truly noteworthy manner of life, even in our discharge of duties as inferiors to a world that is unwilling to even acknowledge that such a thing exists. Let's pray. You're so good to us, Lord. Continue to open our eyes. Continue to instruct us in that greatness of lowliness. Continue to empower us as you call us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to die that we may live. Attend us, Lord, in the discharge of our duties in these stations, particularly those where we are under authority. Father, even in this world and the family, as children, the state, the church. Adorn our lives with mercy, Father, for we ask in Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.